Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Joe Zimmel and Valerie Friedman. This is where we live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalbathanchel, broadcasting remotely. So many interesting and important animals live in our state, and occasionally, where we live, we like to talk about them. Today, we focus on bats. Some people think of them as flying mice. Bats are much more complex and important to our ecosystems than we may realize. Coming up, we learn why bats are in danger. By now, you've heard of white nose syndrome. It's a disease caused by a fungus that has killed off millions of bats across New England and other parts of the U.S. and Canada. How much of Connecticut's bat population has died off, and are there signs they will rebound? Bats are also in the news worldwide because of the COVID-19 pandemic. We'll learn more about the role bats play in zoonotic diseases or diseases that jump from animals to humans. First, do you see bats where you live? I see an occasional bat swooping through the sky at dusk near my house, hopefully eating all those annoying mosquitoes. You can join our conversation, especially if you have questions about bats. You can also find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. Joining us now on Zoom, Jenny Dixon is director of the Wildlife Division for the Connecticut Department of Energy and Environmental Protection. Jenny, welcome to our show. Good morning. Also with us on Zoom is Kate Langwig. She's assistant professor at Virginia Tech and a disease ecologist who studies bat diseases. Kate, welcome to our show. Thank you for having me. I'll start with you, Jenny, since you're here with us in Connecticut. When we think of bats, sometimes people have negative associations. They may think of rabies or uh, stories related uh, to Halloween and spooky things. But they're really bats are really unique groups of a unique group of animals. Tell me, Jenny, when you first got interested in studying bats. Well, I probably first got interested in bats when I was growing up as a kid. I, I lived on a lake in Connecticut, and we had bats all the time. So they were something that I grew up with, I was used to, I was never particularly afraid of. Um, you know, I think that that sparked a lot of my interest in them that then carried over to my professional life. And probably about oh, a little over 30 years ago now that I started working with the Department of Energy and Environmental Protection, one of the things that I focused on right from the very start was bats. And part of my goal was to try and get people to appreciate bats a little bit more and hopefully to dispel some of those Hollywood myths. Hmm. You mentioned you remember them when you were growing up near a lake in Connecticut. I imagine back then there were many different uh, species of bats. How many bats, different kinds of bats live in our state now, Jenny? We have nine different species of bats in Connecticut right now. And it's interesting because actually two of those species were not here when I was, when I was growing up. Mm. They were species that had been common in Connecticut until the 1950s, the Indiana bat and the small-footed bat. And then they had actually been extirpated from the state. So we didn't have them here anymore until the 1990s. We got some sightings of Indiana bats again. And we didn't find small-footed bats back in the state until probably the last five or six years. Hmm, that's interesting. Uh, Kate, what about you? Again, you're a disease ecologist who studies bat diseases. When did you get interested in bats? So I was first interested in bats, actually, as a college student. I, um, I 
grew up uh, actually in upstate New York, so not too far from Connecticut. Um, and when I was a senior in college, I took a trip with part of my class to a local cave. Um, and the population of that local cave had, had recently crashed in part um, in response to white nose syndrome, and that was 2007. So at the time, we knew nothing about it and didn't know what it was, just that there was this mysterious absence of bats. Um, and I began to learn more about them. And one of the things I learned about bats is that they're real survivors. They're a species, they're a taxa that has managed to coexist with humans pretty well um, in, in, you know, at least uh, before uh, the introduction of white nose syndrome. And so that was really intriguing to me was that they were they were sort of they could they could live in people's uh, barns and um, some species of bats and uh, sort of live you know in peri you know suburban uh, areas and so I I liked that they were they were sort of this survivor um, and I was fascinated by um, how we could how a disease like white nose syndrome could come in and wipe out such a huge fraction of them. And we'll be talking more about white nose syndrome as well as uh, why bats are able to coexist with uh, so many uh, deadly viruses uh, around uh, the globe. Uh, but I wanted to learn a little bit more about uh, bats uh, and what what makes them so fascinating. Uh, Jenny, I wanted to go back to you. I had mentioned that people might think of them as flying mice. Also, listeners may have heard or seen flying squirrels. But bats actually are, are they the only mam- mammals that can actually fly? That's correct. Yeah, they are. You know, we talk about flying squirrels. They don't really fly, they just glide. And in terms of, you know, sort of the evolution of flights, millions of years ago, bats probably started out as some sort of gliding mammal, but then over time evolved that that flight stroke. So the only things that are able to accomplish flight are bats and birds. And that's pretty amazing when you think about it. Mm. Uh, we also think of the phrase blind as a bat, but that's not really accurate either, right? Can you talk us about oh, how? No, not at all. But, you know, bats have yeah. really good eyesight. They mm. are active at night, so they tend to rely on other senses. Their echolocation abilities are incredibly well refined. And most of the bats that we have in North America are insect eating bats. So they rely a lot more on their ability to hear insects at night than they do on being able to see them. In other parts of the world where you have species like fruit bats, they've actually spent a lot more time relying on their eyesight because it's a lot more important to be able to see fruit than to hear it. Fruit doesn't make a lot of noise. So, you know, they do vary a little bit in in how they look and how they've evolved based on what kinds of food they eat. Mm. When you talk about echolocation, tell us a little bit more about that, how that works for bats. Sure. Basically, with our bats, it's a system of both communication and food detection, the system of navigation. So they use it, they make a very high pitched frequency call. That sound goes out and bounces off other objects. And then when the echoes come back to the bat, they can calculate how close they are to things, how you know wide or narrow something might be. They can detect things as fine as a human hair. So it's really an amazingly refined system that they have and you know it's it's interesting because it's something that at various points in time has been studied pretty closely by the military to see if there are a lot of other applications that they could learn from how bats use their skills for you know people to think about what that means it's it's very similar to the same way a dolphin would navigate in the ocean 
Mm, interesting. Again, you're hearing Jenny Dixon, Director of the Wildlife Division for the Connecticut Department of Energy and Environmental Protection. And Kate Langwig is with us, Assistant Professor at Virginia Tech, a disease ecologist who studies bat diseases. Uh, Kate, Jenny mentioned there are nine different bat species in Connecticut, but tell us about the other bats that are found around the world. How many species are there? Sure. So there's over 1,400 species and the number keeps going up. So bats are an incredibly diverse taxa. They represent about 20% of all mammal species. Mm. And when we think about the bats that we see here, they're fairly small, but I think Jenny had mentioned the fruit bat. That's a, that's a big one, right? <laughs> yeah. So um, uh, Teropus vampirus, which is, uh, is lives in <laughs> Southeast Asia. Actually, I took a trip to Borneo last summer and had the um, the privilege of seeing them. They have nearly a six foot wingspan, so uh, quite big. Uh, and and they um, uh, actually uh, many of those species have evolved another system of echolocation, which uses tongue clicks uh, instead of um, instead of the echolocation that Jenny described. What was that like to see one of those big bats in, in a tree? Oh my gosh, it was so amazing. <laughs> I mean, I you know I've I've spent my life working on on small North American bats, which are wonderful. And to see something to see something quite that large uh, fly is unbelievable. It, it, and uh, it's just hard to hard to even think how how that could happen. I think some people would be pretty freaked out if they saw a fruit bat flying <laughs> near them. Oh. Yeah, not me. I, I was nearly in tears. I was so excited. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> when we think about the bats here in Connecticut, Jenny, we think of them as eating uh, insects. But talk about the different, uh, the importance of having these bats and the wide diversity of them. The fact that, you know, some may be eating insects, others are helping with pollinating. Yeah, sure. The bats in Connecticut are all insect eaters. So mm -hmm. they are helping us tremendously in terms of controlling insect populations a lot of those populations are things that are impacting agriculture. So things like corn earworm moth, corn borer moth, things like that. And it's been estimated that across the country, bats provide a, an agricultural value of between $3.7 billion and $53 billion a year. There's a huge range there, but some of that depends on how important agriculture is in different parts of the country. When you think about it in sort of the southwestern part of the U.S., you know, we, that's where we get into bats that pollinate a lot of plant fly cactuses. And so that gets into helping to make sure that we've got things like agave. If you think about bats around the world, they're pollinating and helping with seed dispersal for a whole host of plants. A lot of those are things that we see and use every day, everything from almonds to bananas and more. So they are incredibly important to our ecosystem. Hmm. Kate, I mentioned that people might think of bats as flying mice. Are they related uh, to rodents? And what can you tell us about their life cycle? Yeah, bats are not flying mice. So bats, um, bats the, the sister taxa to bats actually includes carnivores, primates. Um, so, so they're as distantly related to rodents as they are uh, essentially to us. Um, and bats have a, more of a, a sort of a longevity uh uh, life history. So bats can live for a very long time. Actually, the record for a little brown bat um, 
longest lifespan comes from New York State and was 34 years old. And most bats, uh, particularly uh, bats in Connecticut, uh, only have one pup per year. Uh, and so they've been designed essentially to live a long time and um, reproduce slowly. And so they're, they're quite different from mice. I would think that's problematic when we think about the the lifespan of bats, the fact that they may only have one pup a year when we think about the millions of bats that have died because of white-nose syndrome in North America. Kate, tell us more about white-nose syndrome and how it impacts bats, especially around where we live. Sure. So white-nose syndrome is a fungal disease. It's caused by this uh, fungus called Pseudogymnoascus destructans. The fungus is native to Eurasia, but it wasn't actually discovered until it was introduced to North America in 2006. And since that initial introduction to a small cave in upstate New York, it's caused mass mortality in multiple species of bats across North America. And so millions of bats have died in some places up to 99%. Entire colonies of bats, so um, caves where the bats lived, have been completely extirpated by the disease. So it's been extremely devastating. Jenny, in Connecticut, we're so close to where white nose was discovered. And how bad has the population been impacted here? It's it's been horrible for us. There, there's no other way to describe it. You know, we we certainly were very close to the epicenter. It really took us until 2008 to start to see signs of significant signs of white nose and a lot of mortality in our bat populations, but it impacted our populations very, very quickly. Many of our once most common bats like little brown bats or northern long-eared bats have had population declines of over 95%. In the case of northern long-eareds, that was a species that Connecticut was considered one of the strongholds for in its, in its population range, certainly in the Northeast, but even beyond that. And we've probably lost 99% of that population. So it's been a phenomenal population impact in a very short period of time because most of that mortality occurred within the first three to five years of white nose showing up in the United States. So it was swift and it was tremendously devastating to our bat populations. And what does it look like today, Jenny, the fact that white, uh, white nose syndrome has been around for some time now? Is it, are, are these bat populations developing any resistance or is it just as deadly as when it was first discovered? I wish that I could tell you that the news was good, but unfortunately mm-hmm. the news is still not good. You know, we've done a number of different studies in the, in the Northeast and other parts of the country, particularly in the Northeast, where we have banded bats in hibernacula, so in places where they overwinter, to try and get a handle on how many of those bats might be surviving from one year to the next. And what we've seen is that we'll quite often see some level of survival for one to three years, and then we generally don't see those bats anymore. So that that sort of fits in with the pattern that we've seen of how long white nose can take to have some really significant mortality events in a lot of our sites. So I wish that I could tell you that we're seeing, you know, a lot of increases in populations or that we were seeing signs that would be consistent with them developing some sort of natural immunity, but that doesn't seem to be the case. You know, we've gone from sites that had well over 3,000 bats that now have maybe five. 
So mm -hmm. it's been a dramatic impact. Anytime we find a site that has, you know, a few dozen bats, we get really excited about it. So our perspectives have changed dramatically in the last decade. You can join our conversation again as we learn more about bats in our state. Jenny Dixon's with us on Zoom, Director of the Wildlife Division for the Connecticut Department of Energy and Environmental Protection. Also, Kate Langwig is here, Assistant Professor at Virginia Tech, who's a disease ecologist and who studies bat diseases. Margaret's calling from Roxbury. Margaret, what's your question? All right. I have a question uh, for Jenny Dixon. Um, she did a lot of good work with the Roxbury Land Trust in our caves, uh, the Land Trust Mine Hill Caves, on the, which is a major bat hibernaculum. And I guess by uh, including, um, I think, uh, deep put in monitors to monitor the environment for the bats. Um, my question for Jenny is, how, how is our Mine Hill hibernaculum doing? And how does it compare to other places uh, in Connecticut where the bats might winter over? And uh, is there anything we can do? I see a few bats, but not the way it used to be. Mm. That's a great question, Margaret. Thank you for asking. And yes, you know, Mine Hill remains a site that is perfectly suitable for bats. All the habitat conditions are right. But unfortunately, that was one of the sites that was hit most severely by white nose. And unfortunately, we are not seeing significant signs of population rebound at that site. One of the things that we've done fairly recently through a lot of the Northeast, through part of a regional conservation needs grant program that is tied to the state wildlife grant program, is we funded some needed repairs and new gating projects to a lot of sites. And Mine Hill was one of those. So we improved some of the gating that's out there already just so that if we do start to see those population rebounds, the bats will still be better protected and, you know, we'll take one less stress out of their population. So we really appreciate, you know, all the hard work that the land trust has put in, in trying to protect their bats for a long time. And I wish I had better news for you, but unfortunately I don't. Mm. That's interesting. You talk about specific sites in Connecticut uh, where you've noticed uh, the population decline drastically. Our reporter here at Connecticut Public, Patrick Scahill, talked to state biologists last fall at Old Newgate Prison in East Granby. Do, does Deep know how many of these bats that lived in that Old Newgate Prison that have survived this past winter? We, we won't be, you know, going back in again until January. So it's, it's hard to say. I believe that when they went in in January or February, it was February of this year, they had about half a dozen bats. So that's pretty consistent with what we've had there in the past. Mm -hmm. We aren't seeing any increases, but these days we get excited if the numbers don't drop. So if we can go in year to year and we have, you know, the same six bats, we're happy to see the same six bats. Uh, Jenny, tell me more about because of uh, white nose syndrome, how that has changed the way you're working and other biologists are working in terms of bat conservation, how you're tracking these populations. One of the major shifts that we've made here in Connecticut, and I know it's true for a number of other states, is we really stopped doing a lot of hands-on bat research work. We didn't want to add additional stresses to our bat populations, not only from the capture and handling, but from the risk of spreading that fungus from one bat to another because every time a bat that might have fungal spores that we can't see would land in a mist net or end up in a harp trap or get handled by a biologist and then you handle another bat, that's a possible exposure 
for an uncontaminated bat. So we stopped doing a lot of that and we stopped permitting a lot of those kinds of research activities here. We've switched over to primarily acoustic monitoring for bats, which has actually turned out to be phenomenally effective for us. We have a number of driving transects across the state that we've run for almost a decade now. And we also do a lot of stationary acoustic sampling. So basically what we're doing is we're capturing those echolocation calls that the bats make at night. And through computer technology, we're able to analyze them down to what species are making those calls. And it gives us a really good sense of the distribution of our bat population throughout the state. What it's allowed us to do too is see whether or not we're finding any of those bats that were hit really hard by white nose. So for example, the Northern long-eared bat we might get a couple recordings every year, but compared to a species like Big Brown, which we get a lot of recordings for, it's clear that they still are not anywhere near rebounding in our state. So it's provided a lot of really good information for us. And ironically, one of the things that it has done is it's allowed us to get a lot more information on our tree roosting bats. Those bats have not been impacted by white nose syndrome like a lot of the cave bats have. They have different life history requirements, and so far we think that that's what's helping them. But what's kind of interesting about that is those were species that in Connecticut before white nose had been considered species of special concern. So they were state listed. We were very concerned about the population status. And through these acoustic sampling methods, we've actually been able to learn a lot more about where they occur in Connecticut. The acoustic sampling is also part of how we were able to detect the return of small-footed bats to Connecticut after a 50-year hiatus. So we're getting a phenomenal amount of information, even though we've switched our research techniques. Mm. Kate Langwig, I'm hoping that you can jump in here again. You study bat diseases uh, because of white nose. How have you and other researchers, your work changed uh, in terms of precautions so that you're not spreading uh, this uh, white nose uh, to other bats? Sure. So um, I uh, study white nose syndrome and uh, everybody in my research team and myself wear full personal protective equipment when we study bats. So um the fungus that causes white nose syndrome is extremely uh, transmissible. It can survive in the absence of bats in hibernation sites for um, more than 10 years. Uh, so it's it's really persistent um, and really easy for bats to acquire. So in the Northeast, um, we know that actually nearly 100% of individuals become infected as soon as they return to hi their hibernation sites. So our main goal when wearing our personal protective equipment is, is to change gloves between any bat we touch to make sure that um, as soon as we leave the caves or mines where the bats are hibernating, that we um, take off all of the Tyvek suits uh, that we're wearing and wipe down and clean all of our gear to avoid contaminating, you know, our own equipment, our cars or homes, um, and also to avoid spreading it to new places. You can join our conversation here on Where We Live as we learn more about bats. We'll take some of your questions right after the break. Again, with us, Kate Langwig, Assistant Professor at Virginia Tech. She's a disease ecologist who studies bat diseases. And Jenny Dixon's here on Zoom, Director of the Wildlife Division for the Connecticut Department of Energy and Environmental Protection. Again, you can join us. Find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live.
This is where we live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel, broadcasting remotely. Do you see bats where you live? These flying mammals are important for several reasons, including pest control and pollination, but they're also linked to diseases like rabies and Ebola. What are scientists learning about bats that could help humans fight deadly viruses, like the coronavirus that's caused the current pandemic? We're going to talk about that in just a few minutes with my guests on Zoom, Jenny Dixon, Director of the Wildlife Division for the Connecticut Department of Energy and Environmental Protection. Also, Kate Langwig, Assistant Professor at Virginia Tech. She's a disease ecologist who studies bat diseases. You can join our conversation, too, if you have a question about bats, 888-720-9677. Ellen's calling from Canterbury. Ellen, go ahead with your question. Hi. uh, I have bats living in my barn, and I would never want to harm them. But I'm wondering if you have any advice for coexisting peacefully with them. Um, I found one on the ground not long ago that looked to be injured or dying, and I noted that it did not have white nose. But so they're pooping on everything in my barn, and I would just like to figure out how to deal with that. Well, thank you for your question. Jenny Dixon, what do you think? Sure. One of the things that you can do that's pretty effective is to put some tarps up in the barn to kind of direct that guano so that it doesn't land on equipment that you have in the barn or if you've got hay bales and things like that that you're trying to protect. That can be an effective solution over the short term during the summer months. One of the things that you could explore doing for next year would be to get some bat boxes and put those up on the outside of the barn and see if you could shift some of the colony to using those versus using the inside of the barn. But I'll tell you right now, it's really hard to get bats to change where they want to roost. They are incredibly loyal to particular roosts. They often use the same roost for decades, and they do that based on a whole variety of microhabitat characteristics. So you might be able to shift them a little bit, but trying to get rid of them would be a huge challenge. And I'm really glad that you want to try and figure out ways to coexist with them. Courtney's calling from Suffield. Courtney, what's your question? Hi. Um, so my husband and I, uh, we really enjoy the bats. And we we notice there's about four or five that we see flying in our yard. One that will come um, and sleep in our one of our bathroom windows. And then we actually, we had a bat box up that was clearly being used. It unfortunately fell during a windstorm, but we did put it back up. And I guess our my question is really how we can kind of help foster um, the best environment for them to keep them here and just to encourage them to hopefully um, remain in the area and do the best that they can. Jenny Dixon, do you have uh, some tips for Courtney? Sure. It sounds like you're doing a lot of the right things already. You know, make sure that you keep the area around that bat box clear so they've got a clear flight path to get to the underside of it so they can get up in there and roost. Anything else you can do in terms of landscaping that will provide sort of native plants that are going to encourage a lot of native invertebrates are going to help the bats because that's going to provide a wider variety of insects for them to eat close by. So, there are lots of you know, other things that you can do to encourage, say, a moth population or something like that that would then benefit the bats. So it sounds like you're already well on your way to doing what you can. And actually, I think one of the most important things that you can do is just share your interest in bats with a lot of your friends and neighbors because the more people learn about bats and get past that 
fear or trepidation that they associate with bats, the more you're actually helping conservation. So go share your interest in bats with everybody you know. We were just talking about a white nose syndrome before we headed to break. And, and uh, Cynthia has a question about white nose. Cynthia, go ahead. Yes. Um, yes. Thank you for taking my call. I was um, wondering if there's any treatment being developed for the white nose syndrome, um, any antimicrobial um, medication. Uh, thank you for that question. Uh, Kate Langwig, could you answer that for Cynthia? Yeah, so there's lots of different treatments that have been developed, um, including uh, including things like probiotics, uh, where I've been part of a group that's been working on trying to harness naturally occurring bacteria on bats and use that to reduce the amount of fungus that grows on their skin during the winter. Uh, and uh, another group out of um, National Wildlife Health Center has been working on developing a vaccine. Both of those uh, treatments have gone through both lab trials and field trials um, and seem to be able to reduce uh, mortality by about 30% or so. So none are sort of a, um, a smoking gun, so to say. They're not going to um, be a, a total solution for the problem. And all of them are still sort of in testing phases. So they're not widely deployed at this point. Mm-hmm. And Jenny Dixon, from the Connecticut perspective, anything you can add to Cynthia's question? I think Kate summarized it really well. You know, the struggle that we've got right now is that a lot of the things that have promise are still in that testing phase and, and trying to apply those in natural environments is still a challenge. So the only real thing that we can do as managers, and I can tell you this frustrates every bat biologist I know, (laughs) is try and reduce any of those other stressors that they might have. So encourage people to learn to live with bats a little bit better and protect those summer roosts, work on increasing protections for their winter hibernaculas, doing anything else we can to try and make their the rest of their life easier so that if they are battling white nose, they have fewer challenges to face. So unfortunately, that's the best that we can do as managers right now until we get some more promising work on the disease side of things. Again, we're talking about bats today with my guests on Zoom, Jenny Dixon, Director of the Wildlife Division for the Connecticut Department of Energy and Environmental Protection. Also with us, Kate Langwig, Assistant Professor at Virginia Tech, who's a disease ecologist who studies bat diseases. Uh, I wanted to talk more about uh, how bats, Kate, are linked to viral diseases like uh, COVID-19, others, SARS and MERS, and wanted to back up a little and just talk more about zoonotic diseases, if you could tell us more about what these are and and how they're related to bats. Sure. So a zoonotic disease is a disease that is able to be transferred from animals to humans. And these diseases, um, there are several zoonotic diseases that have recently emerged, uh, COVID-19 being one of them. Others include Ebola, uh, avian influenza, So there's a number of serious human pathogens that do come from animals. And so tell us more about, you know, why certain diseases spill over from animals like bats. And then there's, I guess, I believe an intermediate host to humans. But there's so many other viruses out there that impact wildlife that don't have an impact on us. What what do scientists know? 
So scientists think that most of the time when spillover occurs, so the transfer of virus to it, um, from animals to another taxa, mm -hmm. it, it happens as a result of humans encroaching on the habitat where those animals live. So most of the examples we know, for example, when bats have transferred their viruses to um, either an intermediate host, so another animal that has spread it to humans or to humans directly, are a result of people doing things around bats that um, they weren't doing before. So either uh, capturing them at wildlife markets where they're sold for meat mm -hmm. or pets, or uh, even just developing areas of tropical rainforest um, that is exposing uh, humans to viruses from animals. When we look at COVID-19, the scientists say that this particular coronavirus, the SARS-CoV-2, came from a particular bat in China. What can you tell us? So we don't know that. Um, so the closest match uh, genetically to SARS-CoV-2 was found in a bat in China, but it's not identical. So we're not exactly sure whether or not um, humans uh, or a, a, the human first human to acquire uh, COVID-19 got it directly from a bat. And many people have suggested that probably wasn't the case, that there was probably an intermediate host that was infected. For SARS-1, we know that um, a bat transferred its coronaviruses to something called a civet cat, probably in a wildlife market. And that's, those civet cats actually got really sick. So bats don't get that sick from SARS, but civet cats do they were infectious enough to actually be able to transfer it to humans. Um, and so uh, people have suggested that perhaps something similar happened. But at this point, we don't know that COVID-19 came from bats, although we do know that bats are a natural host for many coronaviruses. Mm. We started off our conversation talking about how some people may have misplaced fears about bats. I would think that uh, certain uh, zoonotic diseases that have um, um, happened over the years uh, causes that fear to be exacerbated, and that may also impact the bat population in certain countries. Uh, what has happened, Kate, in terms of when SARS and MERS uh, came about? So um, MERS is actually a disease of camels. So again, mm. it, it would, came from bats. The coronavirus that, that was transferred to bats um, that causes MERS uh, probably happened 50 or 60 years ago, and then humans got infected from camels. But a lot of the time, this does result in negative attention mm -hmm. on bats. And so bats uh, have been exterminated from caves, uh, burned out of caves as a result of fears about diseases. And that is absolutely making the problem worse. So Marburg virus is, is a, a filovirus related to Ebola, um, was found in a cave uh, or a mine actually in uh, Kataka mine in Africa. That population was actually um, culled from that cave the, and they tried to seal the seal it up. And the result was actually that they ended up um, increasing the prevalence of this virus in that cave uh, in part probably because they um, they stressed out the animals and uh, and caused a stress response, which might have increased uh, infection. So it's never really a good idea to try to cull bats or hurt bats to reduce disease. What is it about bats that scientists know in terms of their immune system that they can resist or survive these diseases that are so deadly for us, Kate? So I would say we don't know a lot about this. Um, there's 
there's some suggestion that that's one of the reasons that bats carry so many uh, zoonotic viruses is just that there are a lot of bats. So there's 1,400 species of bats. They're hyperdiverse, 20% of mammals. And so as a result, it just means that because there's more species, they also get more species of viruses. And we don't really understand why it is, though it's still an outstanding question as to why a bat uh, could survive, say, with a filovirus that makes humans very ill, that has nearly a 70% fatality rate. There are some hypotheses. One of them is the flight is fever hypothesis, which is the idea that uh, bats, when they fly, increase their body temperature to very warm temperatures, which results in a fever, which um, increases sort of immune activity and metabolic rate and helps them to survive with some of these viruses. But ultimately, we don't really know. Mm. That's really interesting. Uh, Jenny Dixon, I wanted to bring you back into the conversation. Uh, we were talking about the fact that there are uh, several uh, deadly viruses that have been linked to bats. And I'm wondering, in this time where we're in a pandemic with COVID-19, is there any concern that uh, this uh, particular virus could impact North American bats and, and, and how that would also hurt population here? That's been a tremendous concern to bat biologists across the country because for our bats, this represents a novel virus. You know, this is a virus that comes primarily from old world bats to the best of our knowledge. It's not something our bats have already been exposed to. So much like the issue with white nose, you know, this represents a new virus for most of our North American bats. They're already being challenged by a novel virus. So understanding the implications of introduction of a new novel virus and what that could mean is really, really important right now. And one of the things that a lot of folks have been working on is trying to do a risk assessment to see what the, what the risk might be for people actually transmitting the virus to bats in North America, and then what that means for conservation and you know, long-term what that might mean for zoonotic diseases. So it is a very concerning issue for all of us right now. What a lot of states have done are put protections in place to try and protect our bat population. So for example, here in Connecticut, we are not doing any research on bats right now. We are also not letting our wildlife rehabilitators take in bats right now because we need to try and protect our bat populations the best we can. And unfortunately, you know, we've been in a tough situation in Connecticut because we don't have a lot of necessarily abundant supplies of PPE. So Kate had mentioned earlier about how, you know, her team always suits up with PPE and is sort of properly protected when they work with bats. That would certainly help reduce the risk of us giving this virus to bats. Unfortunately, we can't guarantee that all the researchers who might want to work with bats would have access to that level of protective gear. So right now we need to err on the side of the caution, on the side of caution, and we're protecting our bat populations until we can learn more. Again, you're hearing Jenny Dixon, Director of the Wildlife Division for the Connecticut Department of Energy and Environmental Protection. Also, Kate Langwig is here with us on Zoom, too. She's an assistant professor at Virginia Tech, a disease ecologist who studies bat diseases. We're going to continue talking about bats after the break. You can join us. Find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live.
This is where we live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Again, today we're taking time to talk about bats with our guests on Zoom, Jenny Dixon, Director of the Wildlife Division for the Connecticut Department of Energy and Environmental Protection, and Kate Langwig, Assistant Professor at Virginia Tech. We did have a question uh, for our guests on uh, social media. Let me read this to you, uh, Jenny Dixon. Uh, Jason writes, we have a lot of bats in Meriden. They seem to live in our backyard. We had the same exact experience at our last place in Wallace. Inferred, and it sounds like the populations are waning in Connecticut. Wants to, Jason wants to know, is New Haven County a known home to Connecticut's bat population? What can you tell him? I suspect that probably what he's seeing in his backyard is our populations of big brown bats. Even though our big brown bat population has been impacted by white nose, it's been to a much lesser degree than a lot of our other bat species. So that tends to be one of our more common bats. It's also a bat that likes to live in urban and suburban areas and does fairly well close to people. So my guess is what he's seeing right now are a lot of big brown bat populations. And they've been pretty stable in most areas of the state. And certainly that's exactly what I would expect in a place like Meriden or Wallingford. Amanda writes on Twitter that they love their bats. They have them in their barns. The pups sometimes fall and need a hand to get back up to their parents. Any advice on how to keep this from happening? Is that a is that something that people should do? Pick up these pups, Jenny? Well, it's certainly a good way to get them back into the colony. I guess the, the first thing that I would always say is make sure you're wearing gloves when you do that. And right now I would say make sure that you're you know, doing your best not to breathe on those pups as you're putting them up off the ground. But yeah, a lot of times, if you can just get the pups off the ground and onto a surface where they can either start to climb upward or whether where the adult female can come back and collect her pup, that's usually the best way to try and help them. They do a lot better if they can be reunited with their mother than if they, you know, are placed with a wildlife rehabilitator because that pups are incredibly difficult to try and rear when they're young. One of the other things that's really kind of amazing about them is even though you might have a colony of 20 bats, 100 bats, 1,000 bats, the mothers can actually identify their own pups within that sort of mass of bat life. So it's a pretty amazing quality that they have. Kelly is calling back from Avon. Kelly, I hope you can hear me now. What's the question? Yes, can you hear me? Yep, go ahead. Okay, great. Yes, I was wondering. I am a big bat fan. I had a bat in my backyard, so I bought a bat house. And I'm wondering what's the best place to hang it and what's the likelihood that I'll actually get that? That's Jenny a great Dixon. question. You know, I think the important thing is to put it in all the places that you probably wouldn't normally think of. And what I mean by that is, you know, we have a tendency to try and put things like birdhouses and bat houses on trees. That's something you don't want to do because the canopy of the tree actually provides too much shade for the bat box and it never really gets to the right temperature that the bats would prefer. The other problem is that when it's on something like a tree, it's much easier for a predator like a raccoon to get to and they will eat bats. So you're much better off trying to put it on a freestanding pole in your yard or mount it to the side of a shed or a garage or even the side of your house. You want it to be someplace where it's gonna get at least four hours of fairly strong sunlight a day. Those are probably the most important things to think about. And here in the Northeast, our bat boxes tend to work 
best when they're darker in color. So I'm not sure what color the box is that you have, but if it's a natural wood color right now, you might want to stain or paint the outside to be a little bit darker. You know, anything from dark brown to a dark green to a black will work really well to get that temperature up a little bit. The bats tend to like it warm. So, you know, this time of year, that's what they're looking for. Uh, I wanted to ask you, Jenny, I had mentioned I saw a bat the other week uh, flying around at dusk. Is this a, an active time for bats right now here in Connecticut? This is an incredibly active time of year for them. You know, it's usually right about mid-July when a lot of the young bats start taking their first flight. So usually about the third week of July, we start getting an awful lot of phone calls from people who are either seeing bats or who've had bats get into their homes. Young bats are like anything else they, that's young. They tend to make a lot of mistakes. If everybody goes left, they invariably will go right just to see where right goes. And, you know, they end up putting themselves sometimes into tricky situations. So this is an incredibly active time for them. They're also at a point now where not only are the young bats starting to become independent and learn to fly on their own, but the bats are at a point now where they're also starting to think about trying to put on weight to move into hibernation this fall. I know it seems like it should be a long way away, but it really isn't that far away if you're a bat. And you know, the interesting thing is, I think when we think about animals putting on weight for hibernation, we tend to think about bears who might pack on 50 or 100 pounds. You know, with a bat, you're talking about adding ounces. So it's really an interesting twist in how we think about that. I wanted to go back to you, Kate Langwig, again, assistant professor at Virginia Tech. We just have a couple of minutes left, but we talked briefly about uh, bats' immune systems and how they're able to coexist uh, with deadly viruses. I wonder if you could tell us a little bit about, you know, again, when we think about bat conservation, why it's so important that research is done on bats so that we can learn how to fight off these deadly viruses. Sure. So I I would advocate that um, one of the, a lot of our missing pieces in terms of the disease ecology and specifically viral ecology of bats is the ecology component. So there's been a lot of work to understand what viruses bats have, uh, but not as much work to understand, do bats get sick from these viruses? When do they carry them? What species have them? Is this done, you know, is the transfer of these viruses um, across species or are they relatively conserved? And I think um, understanding a, a little bit better some of those questions could help us to, to understand, you know, how, how humans might fight these diseases, but also um, how, how likely these viruses are to spill over to humans. So we do know that bats can carry a huge diverse array of viruses, but what we often don't know is what the risk is of those viruses being transferred. And so those questions can give us some insight into that. We were talking earlier about the threats impacting bat populations, obviously habitat destruction. What do we know about climate change, Kate? So we don't know a huge amount about the effects of climate change on bats, although we suspect that just like every other species on the planet, bats will be impacted. One uh, one thing of note is that we have seen that some southern species of bats uh, are moving northward. So here in Virginia and uh, my neighboring state is Tennessee, there used to be, um, there's new species of bats that are sort of coming up from the south. Uh, and so we suspect that we're, climate change is changing the communities in fairly dramatic ways. And certainly uh, we expect that climate change might change um, the synchronicity with insect populations. So people have worried about 
how might um, flower blooms or fruit setting or insect changes uh, affect bat populations as those bottom-up processes occur. Well, we'll have to leave it there. I want to thank Kate Langwig again for joining us, assistant professor at Virginia Tech who studies bat diseases. Kate, thank you so much. Thank you. Also with us, Jenny Dixon, director of the Wildlife Division for the Connecticut Department of Energy and Environmental Protection. Jenny, we thank you. Oh, thank you so much. Today's show produced by Carmen Baskoff. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Have a great weekend.